It's a joy to, to be with you. I was actually here earlier this summer. I had an opportunity that I was given to, to preach uh, and open God's Word with you. And, and I'm back again on short notice. Uh, actually, your pastor, Justin, he did give me a little advance notice. He, he contacted me probably the beginning of August, and he said, Hey, you know, baby's coming. We need you to be on call. Kind of be prepared to, to get called on a Saturday night and say you're up on Sunday morning. At least God was gracious, and he gave me, I think it was Friday was the, the birth of the baby. So uh, I do come prepared, um, but also uh, grateful to be here. Uh, in fact, I, I chose, uh, Justin gave me the freedom to, to preach, you know, whatever passage I'd like. And so I, I chose a passage. Uh, in fact, it's Psalm 127. Many of us are familiar with this. I chose it to honor this season in the life of the church, uh, the, you know, the, the arrival of a new child, and there's many children running around here with great expectations that this would be a wonderful sermon on children being a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And after I spent some time in the Word with God, He actually revealed some different things to me and actually showed me that that might not be the main purpose of this passage. So, uh, so with me being a slave to the text, I'm going to preach the text as the way God showed it to me. Um, of course, this, thing, this passage has something to say about our children, and, and I certainly intend to speak about that uh, this morning. But if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Psalm 127. I, I think the, well, the passage is right here. How convenient. Everything's right here for us. Convenient. Uh, so Psalm 127, just to give you a, a little bit of quick context uh, for you, uh, Psalm 127 is attributed to King Solomon. If you look at the ascription at the beginning, it's called a song of ascent of King Solomon. Of Solomon, as we know of, of King Solomon. A song of ascent was, was one of 15 Psalms, 120 through 124 in our Bibles, that were dedicated for one purpose for one season of the year. It was a mandated season of worship where everybody was mandated to, to vacate their jobs, their work, their life, to come to Jerusalem for a season of worship. And so these psalms, the 15 of them, and 127 falls in that, were sung, they were chanted, they were, uh, they were recited together as God's people ascended to Jerusalem for worship. And so here, God gives us this beautiful song of ascent, and let me read it for us as we uh, consider it together this morning. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and kind Father in heaven, we take great joy that you have given us your word. It is true, it is right, it is clear, it is convicting, and we need it. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would uh, protect our minds from distractions, that you would soften our hearts from the heaviness that surrounds them, and that you would open your word to us. 
Lord, I pray that you would move me aside and that you would make me a slave to this passage and that you, by your spirit and for your glory, would make Jesus um, famous because of his word. And we ask all of these things in his matchless name. Amen. In South Minneapolis, Minnesota, there is a uh, silence room. It is a chamber. In fact, many, it is the quietest space in, the, in our country. It holds the world record for the quietest chamber ever. In fact, NASA rents this room out to train astronauts in. Uh, Harley Davidson used this room to make their motorcycles quieter. Whirlpool tests their uh, machines in this room to make it quiet. The president and the owner of this chamber, the, the inventor of this chamber, says that when he walks into this room, he can hear the valve in his artificial heart ticking. And perhaps what's most profound about this room is that the world record for one person being in it in utter silence is 45 minutes. 45 minutes is the only amount of time that a person has been able to handle this level of silence. I think this speaks to the the noisy and busy and clattering culture that we are all living in. We live in a culture that is exhausting. We live in a culture that is 24-7. We live in a culture that demands all of us all of the time. We work all the time. We think all the time. We are connected all of the time. There is no moment in which silence is really and truly comfortable for us. We are perhaps the most overworked and exhausted people the world has ever known. And among those people, I think, and this is an opinion, but I think it would be uh, entrusted by many, that the most tired subset of those people are actually work-at-home mothers. Not stay-at-home mothers, work-at-home mothers. Their job is unending. Their task is grueling. And so I I bring this to our attention because I believe that, that busyness has become a disease to us. That busyness has caused us to move from being human beings into being human doings. We are constantly on the go, and we have no idea how to rest. The wonderful thing about a passage like this, and what I believe God has for us today, is that Scripture confronts us in our busyness, and it also shows us where true rest is found. Psalm 127 shows us the vanity of all of our human efforts apart from God's power and God's blessing. Psalm 127 is all about God's power and God's blessing. Here's how I want us to to break this passage up, and it's fairly simple. I want us to look at two things largely. I want us to consider first the vanity of busyness in the first two verses, and then I want us to look at the blessing of grace in the following verses. So let's first consider the vanity of busyness. Remember the context here for the psalm. This is God's people, the Israelites, Old Testament, traveling towards Jerusalem where the temple of God was for worship. It was mandated three times per year. This was one of them. This would have been a hustle and bustle type of movement towards Jerusalem. And the context also ascribes the authorship to Solomon. 
Now, what we know about Solomon is that he actually took place in the building of the temple. And so naturally, in the context, this psalm is associated with worship, and it's associated with the temple. But that doesn't divide us from the context, because this psalm is more than just about the temple for the Israelites. It's more than just about worship in the Old Testament. It has everything to do with us. Look at verse 1. Two things pop up initially. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor in, it, uh, labor in vain. And secondly, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So here in the very outset of this psalm, we see two things, two metaphors, two pictures for us, the house and the city. The house certainly would have been brought up um, thoughts of the temple. But this house has so much more to do with the, than the Old Testament temple. This house is your house. This house is my house. This house is the homes of Jerusalem. This house is the homes of Albuquerque. This house metaphor brings to mind everything that has to do with value, worth, identity. That's what the building of the house in this psalm has to do with. The second picture is that of the city, watching over the city, namely. Not just the city of Jerusalem, not just the city of Albuquerque, but the city by and large, which invokes to both the readers of this psalm and to the readers of it today, that of safety, assurance, security, comfort. And so in verse 1 alone, we see these all-encompassing deep desires that every one of our hearts wants. We want worth. We want security, we want identity, we want value, we want comfort. That's what this psalm invokes in verse 1. And those who build the house or watch the city without God's power and without God's blessing are doing it in vain. The psalmist continues in verse 2. He says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go to late rest. In other words, you night owls and you early birds, if you're doing this, you're doing it with an anxious toil. You stay up late worrying, you get up early worrying. The anxiety runs deep into our hearts. Many of you are familiar with with Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus addressed uh, the anxiety that's in our hearts when he was talking to some of his followers they were concerned about what to eat and what to drink and what to wear clothes. And, and he likened this situation to the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He said, in paraphrasing him, he says, you know, do the birds of the air, do they store up all their food? Do the lilies, do they clothe themselves? Well, no, God feeds and God provides. And then he concludes that teaching by saying, and so likewise with you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Jesus knows the anxiety that was in their hearts. He knows the anxiety that is in our hearts. The reason we have this anxiety and the reason that we are, strictly speaking, we are addicted to busyness is because we try to build our entire lives without reference to God. Everything that God has to offer us in the deepest desires of our hearts, our sense of worth, value, identity, security, significance, all of that we try to build without God's help. We try to work our way 
to earn everything that God has already given to us. Think about the way you work. The way that our culture has told us to work is you take care of yourself. You work your way up the corporate ladder in order to provide best for you and your family. And as you continue to grow and work your way up, you continue to satiate and want more and more and go higher and higher until our heart is content and we all know it never is. Or perhaps in our families, we think, okay, I'm not going to sell out for the money and the career, but, but it's our family. If I would just have the, the right amount of children, if my children would just happily attend church, if my children would just get along, if all of that would happen, my heart would be less anxious. Or maybe it's just in the comfort and the pleasures and the leisures that we pursue in, in the Western culture that, that we think that the more we pursue entertainment and leisure, the less heavy our hearts will be. Maybe you're, you're here today and you're thinking, Adam, you're talking to Christians. This, this busyness doesn't overrule us. We're Christians. We're here on Sunday morning. We've given up at least a, a quarter of our weekend to, to, to be at church. This, this busyness is, isn't overwhelming us. Listen to this quote I, I, I came across. It's from a book written by Jean Fleming. I know she's a Christian. I actually haven't read the entire book, but snippets of it. It's called Between Walden and the Whirlwind. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll enjoy it. Here's what she says. She says, In the 20-something years that I've been a Christian, I've received instruction on and been challenged to read my Bible daily, pray without ceasing, do in-depth Bible study regularly, memorize Scripture, meditate all day and night, fellowship with other believers, always be ready to give an answer to the questioning unbeliever, give to missions and to the poor, work as unto the Lord, use my time judiciously, Give thanks in all circumstances. Serve the body using my gifts to edify others. Keep a clean house as a testimony. Practice gracious hospitality. Submit to my husband. Love and train my children. Disciple other women. Manage finances as a good steward. Involve myself in school and community activities. Develop and maintain non-Christian friendships. Stimulate my mind with careful reading. Improve my health through diet and exercise. Color coordinate my wardrobe. Watch my posture. And finally, but not last... Simplify my life by baking my own bread. It's exhausting. It's exhausting, but it's the unspoken expectations of a world that demands our everything. That's what's tugging at our hearts. And so the question is not are you busy? Busyness is not inherently the problem. The question is why are you so busy? Why is it that we feel like we must do everything that is demanded of us? Busyness is vain. Let's consider, secondly, the blessing of grace. Looking at the second half of verse 2 and down. I'm not sure if you have this problem in your family or in your, if you're married or with your friends, but my wife and I have a small disagreement. Um, I did not run this illustration by her, but I think she'll, it'll be okay. When we go to Redbox, we have differing opinions on what should come out of that box. Now, I know we are supposed to graciously and welcome chick flicks. I am all for a good chick flick. But over the years, we've been married 11 years now. We've known each other even longer. Uh, I I just know chick flicks are just so darn predictable, right? And I am the guy 
that likes to know the movie plotline, right? Like, I pick it up, and I tell everybody that we're watching it with. So if it's me and my wife, this drives her crazy, but I talk during the movie. And I, and I put all of the pieces together before, I mean, we're like 10 minutes in with a chick flick, and I've got it all laid out. And so when we go to Redbox, I always, I think it almost to the task, she tells me what we're getting, basically. She says, here's the, the newest and greatest. And I rebut that, and I say, well, here's a movie that doesn't appear to be predictable and, you know, looks really good. We usually end up with the chick flick. It's okay. But, but the point is, I'm over movies that are predictable. I, I am. And I, my mind just works in a way that I'm always plotting towards that end. Because I think that... The, there's something to be said in the unpredictability of life, and I think there's something that ties that together with grace. I think that grace is the intrusion of the unexpected, and I think that in the church today that oftentimes grace and the gospel have become quite honestly boring and predictable to us. We know the old, old story of the cross. We know what Jesus has done for us. We know our problems and we know the solution. We know we sin. We know we confess. And quite honestly, it's become predictable and asinine to many of us. But I think that grace comes in and it changes things for us. And I actually think that happens in this psalm. Because if verses 1 and 2 are the introduction showing us the vanity of busyness, I would expect something different than what the rest of the psalm gives me. Because what the rest of the psalm does is it shows us three things that are actually unexpected sources of grace. It shows us that sleep, kids, and evangelism are unexpected sources of grace of the psalm. Look at verse 2, the, the end of verse 2. I actually think this, this is the buried main point of this entire psalm. Let me read it again. Let me read the, the whole verse too. It says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed, go, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And there's a subtle statement that says, For he gives to his beloved sleep. There is something to be said about the restfulness and peace that comes from God in a good night's rest. Can I get an amen, parents? There's something to be said about that. Take a, take a stroll with me. There are three, at least three that I discovered instances of God working in profound ways when people are sleeping in the Bible. Beginning in the garden, Adam. God puts him into a deep sleep as the text in Genesis tells us. It's a tardema sleep. It's not the same word used in Psalm, but it is a deep sleep. And out of that deep sleep comes what? Woman. He puts him in a deep sleep and he gives him his mate. He gives him his woman. That, that was a, a good work of God when we were resting. Uh, another example is, is Abram. A little bit later in Genesis, Abram's going through this covenant ceremony in Genesis chapter 15. And God has told him to take all of these animals to divide them. It was a bloody ceremony. And typically in a ceremony like this, both parties that were going into covenant with each other would walk through those animal parts. In other words, saying, if you break your end of the bargain, this will happen to you. And so God, with the flaming torch and burning pot, he goes through representing him, himself. And then what happens in the text? Does Abraham go through it? No, he doesn't. God puts him in a tardema sleep. God puts Abram to sleep, and he walks through it. In other words, saying, if and when you break this covenant, I will fulfill both ends of it. That was a good work of God when we were sleeping. 
The third one that I found was, was in that, that whole first Samuel episode when, when uh, Saul is chasing David and David's on the run from him. Well, there's this instance, I, I didn't write down the passage. I think it's in 1 Samuel 16, if my mind serves me right. But, but Saul is put into this deep sleep and David stumbles upon him. And if he had been awake and aware, David would have been dead meat. But God puts him in yet again, the text says, a tardema sleep, a deep sleep, and David's able to escape. King David, the one who would establish God's kingdom. So what we find in these three instances in this this theology of sleep, as it were, is that when we rest, God works. That when we sleep, God is not asleep. It, It speaks to our understanding of God's role in the Sabbath. That, that perhaps one of the greatest statements that we can make as the people of God is this, is when we rest from our work, is when we stop doing what the world tells us to do, and we gather to worship, and we spend the entire day in rest, in gospel rest for God. I mean, it, it's so telling of the, the world, even in the Christian world that we live in, out of the Ten Commandments, which one do we argue? Do we ever say, you know, murder, maybe we should rethink that. Or, you know, stealing, I don't know, it might be a decent idea. How about adultery? No. We argue the Sabbath. We say, hmm, God wants us to rest. I'm not sure about that. Let's, let's talk about the semantics. Maybe there's some legalism involved there. Why would God want us to rest? I mean, this is not intended to be an all-inclusive persuasion towards Sabbath rest, but, but let's take the principle. God wants us to rest. And that in itself is a witness and a testimony to the world. Because verse 2 says that he gives to his beloved sleep. The second intrusion of unexpected grace in the end of this psalm is the blessing of children. Children are a source of rest. They are a heritage, a gift from God. They are a gift, not a curse. They are a blessing, not a burden. They are a reward, not a risk. They are, when we fill our quivers with them, we are blessed by God. But you know what's going on in our world. I mean, you're on Facebook. You're, you're in the media world. You see what Planned Parenthood's doing. You see the children that we are killing. You see the world that says that they are a burden and not a blessing. Let's bring this a little closer to home because I've been on the internet and I know that it's out there. But let's bring this closer to home about what our culture is telling us about our children. There's a a surgical center less than a half a mile from where we are standing right now that kills children daily. We are murdering our babies on the altar of Moloch and the culture tells us that it's out of convenience. Now, this is not intended to be an entire thing on that, but it would be remiss of me not to comment on what the world's telling us about our children. And so the intrusion of grace is when we have children and we enjoy them. The intrusion of grace is when we fill our quivers and we say that that's a blessing from God. It's not a burden on my income. The intrusion of grace is when we worship as the family of God and we treat other children as though they were our own. The intrusion of grace is when we cry out to a world that hates children that we love children. That's where grace intrudes and it changes everything about us. I could go, I, we're going to stop there. The third intrusion of grace in this psalm, and it goes down towards the bottom, 
And it's kind of sneaky. It kind of snuck up on me. I almost overlooked it, but it's that last part of verse 5. He says that he, speaking of the blessed man, shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. In other words, the man who would go into public and that he would converse and that he would engage in his public life, in the public arena, in his workplace, that he would not be put to shame. And, and I've, taken, I've taken that a little bit more specifically saying it's the blessing of evangelism because I think the context lends to it. That we are talking about what it looks like to receive God's blessing, to have his heritage of children, and so likewise when we go out of these walls and into the world. You see, all of these things, sleep, children, evangelism, none of them can be fruitful apart from God's power and apart from God's blessing. That's, that's the main point of the psalm, is that we try to build all of these things. We build our home, we build our city, and then out of those flow our attempt to rest, as, as vain as that is, and we try to build our children and our families, and we try to sh- tell people about the Lord, and we do it all without God's power and without God's blessing. And all of that is in vain. And we can make none of that happen. None of that can be fruitful apart from him. And so let me, let me just kind of propose this as we begin to explore and investigate this kind of into some of those, those quiet crevices and those dark corners of our hearts that, that perhaps are, are hiding. This can help us diagnose what's going on. What is it that would devastate you to lose? In others, other words, if you lost this, whatever it is, what would make you, make you incurably lost or completely inconsolable? What is it that, that, that you lose sleep over at night? What is it that you lie awake thinking about? The Bible identifies those as idols. So whatever that is, that's the problem. That's the root of it. That's the why we do busyness, right? That's why we are slaves to the busyness. Maybe it, it is your work. You cannot detach from work. You were always thinking about work. There are always things going on in your mind so that you cannot be present. Work is your idol. Maybe it's, it's your children. If you lost your child to some tragic circumstance, would you be inconsolably lost? Would you be incurably unfindable? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your ministry. Maybe whatever ministry that looks like. Maybe it's formal ministry. Maybe it's informal ministry. Maybe if, if you could never tell anybody about Jesus and, and you couldn't see people coming to faith, maybe that has become your idol. Maybe your reputation or your status in the community. If you lost that, if you were shamed or defamed in some way, it would make you incurable and utterly lost. Well, you may be hearing a tone of, Judgment, or maybe God is pricking your conscience in some areas. And I think that's actually good. Because I believe that repentance, turning away from whatever it is that is driving your heart towards busyness, is actually where true rest is discovered. I believe that repentance and knowing our helplessness is when grace becomes unexpected again. It's when grace becomes unpredictable. It's when God unleashes his power and his blessing in the most profound and life-changing ways. In our call to worship this morning, 
we use this, 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 these words of encouragement from Jesus when he was calling people to himself and he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me. He doesn't say, do something to get to me. He doesn't say, work. He doesn't say, show me how worthy you are. He says, come to me. And so my question that I want to conclude with today is this. Do you want that kind of worth and value and significance and identity in your life? I, I think you do. The Bible says you do. And the question that you must ask yourself is, why am I working so hard to get it? Because Jesus says that he's offered it to you free of charge. He says, come to me. Because what we know about Christianity and the free offer of the gospel is that God showed us our worth, our value, and our significance by becoming like us. That Jesus came and he embodied our nature apart from sin, and he became one with us. He knew the anxious toil of living life here. Yes, different context. But he knew the anxieties of your heart, yet he willingly came. And what he did in his life was he walked a perfect life from birth till 33 or or so years of perfect obedience under the authority of all of God's laws and all of God's demands. They were crushing to his soul, but he perfectly obeyed them. And he not only lived the perfect life, but then he continued on that path of obedience to drink the cup that his father had designated for him to drink. If you're familiar in the New Testament, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was so anxious that blood poured from his forehead. And he was not anxious simply about the physical punishment that he would receive, though he would receive it. He was anxious about drinking the cup that he wished could pass from him, the cup of God's wrath. In that cup was poured all of your sin, all of your anxiety, all of your worried, all all of your busyness, all of your desires to work, to earn God's love were in that cup because those efforts of self-righteousness are not simple gestures. They're holy offenses to a holy God. And Jesus drank it. He drank it to the dregs on the cross. And in his utterance, his, his declaration of victory upon the cross, he said, it is finished. The work has been done. There is nothing that you can do to earn more of God's love nor ever misplace it because Jesus has secured it all for all of us, for all time. And in that deep place of rest, Jesus went to the tomb. He was buried. He was abandoned. He was utterly forsaken by the world and by his father. In that place of darkness, God the father accepted his death on our behalf He rose him to life in victory. And in that resurrection holds our greatest hope of rest. There is nothing that we can add to that. Jesus has paid it all. And to top it off, the Bible gives us these wonderful pictures. It says that after spending 40 days in his resurrected and glorified body with his disciples on earth, he ascended up to heaven on high. And he now does what? He now sits at the right hand of God the Father. The king is sitting because his work is finished. 
Do you hear that today, Christians? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you believe that the work is done? Because that's what the gospel shows us today. If you want to apply Psalm 127 to your life, here's the final application. Do nothing. Now that might sound unorthodox, slightly offensive to some of you. We can have that conversation afterwards. But I think we need to hear that today. Do nothing. Do nothing but behold the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Take a nap. Give your wife a nap today. The work is done. There is nothing that we can do to exhaust God's love nor earn it for us. The work has been done. Would you enjoy that today? Would you know that today that Psalm 127 shows us that all of our human efforts, apart from God's work and God's power and God's blessing, are in vain. But praise be to God that Christ has done the work for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, Lord, I hope that some of us are still amazed at how good you are to us. Lord, that as you look at us from your throne above, that, that you're smiling, that you've clothed us in the righteousness that was earned by someone else. Lord, that no matter how much we do, no matter how busy we stay, no matter how filled our schedules are, that doesn't add to our worth in your sight, that Jesus is everything. Lord, I pray that that would be fresh for some of us. I pray that that would be a reminder for others of us. And Lord, I pray that you would be exalted and that you would change us because of that. And we pray all these things in in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.